We continue in 1 Timothy, the book of 1 Timothy. It's a, one of the pastoral letters that Paul writes. He writes two to Timothy, one to Titus. He writes to pastors in all time. And here he specifically talks to Timothy about what it means to be a pastor and to pastor well. And I can see you right now thinking, wow, finally you're preaching a sermon to yourself. It's about time. I'm sure you know that every sermon you hear has already been preached to myself many times. And this is specifically for pastors, but there's also benefit for the whole church. So don't tune out. It helps you consider if you ever have to move or find a church or you're telling your children how to look for a church. The things that they should look for in a pastor. It also informs how you should pray for me and really for the elders as well. So Paul tells Timothy, in light of the false teachers, that he has authority to correct them. He must persevere. He must guard his life and his doctrine. He must guard the truth. Why? Because this is the household of God, the church, the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And if we love those in the flock, we will tell them the truth. 1 Timothy 1.5, he says, The aim of our charge is love. So the text, 1 Timothy 4, 11 through 16. Would you please stand for the reading of God's holy, inspired word. God has brought you here this morning in part to hear this word. Starting in verse 11. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders, or presbytery, laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Amen. Please be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we have just read your words, the words that you wrote. And you've called us here to hear these words and to learn from them. Yet this is impossible apart from your spirit, so we pray in Jesus' name that once again you would open our eyes to truth that our hearts would be changed, that your word would slice through joints and marrow to the, to the very center of our being, and that you would be glorified as we are changed. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the first of a two-part series. I just could not put it all into one message. We're going to talk about 
what it means to be a godly leader, a God-fearing leader, what right worship should look like, according to Paul. And then next week we'll talk about holy living and watchful persistence. So today, just God-fearing leadership. That's where we'll start. God-fearing leadership. The words Paul uses shock the modern ear. When we hear these words, we kind of recoil because it's certainly not what you expect from a typical modern fluffy evangelical church. He says, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you. Think of what he's saying. Command and teach these things. This is not just something that he's started here. Look all through Timothy. Go back to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Let's just walk through the book very quickly. Verse 1. Paul says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God, our Savior, and Jesus Christ, our hope. Paul serves because he's been commanded to serve as an apostle. Verse 3, he says, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia to remain at Ephesus, that's where he's pastoring, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. A charge and a command, they're both military terms. They mean basically the same thing. Verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a good conscience and a sincere faith, a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Look at verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, this command I entrust to you, child, my child Timothy, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Do you see this is going to be a battle, Timothy? And you need to remember that you are charged, you are commanded to hold firm to the things that I'm going to teach you. Look at verse 7 of chapter 5. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. In other words, the command, the charge that you give others pushes them to holiness, pushes them to God's standard. Look at verse 21 of chapter 5. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudicing. Do nothing from partiality. Do you see the the idea that Paul is communicating to Timothy? It's from God, from Jesus, from the elect angels, and to me, and I'm charging you now that you should charge others. There's a chain of command. This authority is from God. Verse 13 of chapter 6. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 17. 
As for the rich in this present age, I charge them not to be haughty or set themselves their hopes on uncertainty of riches, but on God. You see the idea that Paul is communicating to Timothy is an authority that is fearful. Over and over again, he says, in the sight of God, in the sight of the elect angels, I charge you. In the military, you learn very quickly that the authority of an officer isn't based on that officer's goodness. It's not based on his, his inspirational qualities or even his, his ability to carry out or his diligence or anything else. When an officer issues an order to an enlisted man, and you who have been in the service, you know this already, you're obliged to obey that, orfer, that order if it's lawful. Not because the man who gave it to you is wonderful, but because that authority is derived from the president himself through the Constitution. My nephew just took his uh, oath, his swearing in, into the Air Force. And he said these words, I solemnly swear to obey the orders of the President of the United States and of the officers appointed over me. It doesn't say if he's a good guy. It doesn't say if he's a, a good leader. If he gives you a lawful order, you obey it. This is the same kind of idea that the Romans uh, had and it's passed down to militaries today. When the emperor had a tribune or a high-ranking officer, a general, that the emperor gave that officer authority to speak for him. And it was delegated all the way down to the centurion, the leader of a hundred, to speak on behalf of the emperor. And Paul is pulling from that, that tradition, he's pulling from that culture, and this word is a military word, and he's using it here, to instruct Timothy. And he says, command these things. So similarly, a people of a congregation obey their leaders as far as they're speaking biblically. If they're issuing commands from Scripture, if you hear it, you should obey. Because God has commissioned and appointed your elders to this fearful duty and task to lead the flock. It is weighty, and it is with some trepidation that anyone approaches a pulpit, but it's also joyful. It's a, it's a joyful burden. But I don't want you to think that, I mean, this is what God has worked in my own soul as I try to soften this somehow. The reality is this is real spiritual authority. It's not somehow a made-up thing. It's not somehow just up to your own judgment on, yeah, I'll take this and I'll leave that. If it's biblical, this authority means that the words that are coming from Scripture are your duty to obey. Why? Because God is the master of every pastor. He speaks through his appointed officers, his shepherds, his elders. But the fact remains, it's, it's rare to hear a pastor command anything. These, this day and age, of course, it's just not popular, despite the fact that the force of this Greek verb, command, is very clear. We know the history of the word very clearly. 
When do you hear any gigantic megachurch pastor commanding his flock to do anything? Biblical or not. If you've ever watched any of these folks on TV, never. Why? Because people don't like it. That's pretty simple. You say, well, this is just one time. Well, we went through all of 1 Timothy, and I showed you all the places where Paul uses that language, command, charge. Look at Titus 2.15, two books over. He tells Titus, rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And the word authority, again, is pulled from the Roman army. It's command authority. He's saying rebuke with all command authority. Let no one disregard you. That phrase, let no one disregard you, is just referring to the fact that if someone doesn't listen to what you're saying, it's not that you go, you go to their house and beat them up or something. No, but you pursue them. Love always pursues. You don't let them walk away and ignore the word of God. If they're part of your flock, you, you have a duty to pursue them in love. And ensure that they don't disregard you. Because by doing so, if you're preaching the word of God, they're disregarding God himself. So just as Timothy and Titus are told not to disregard the word of God as preached, not to disregard you, so you'll see me pursuing you. Hopefully you'll see me pursuing you often with God's word. As well as Jerry. Your elders, that's our duty. I think the important, the important note to remember isn't that your elders have authority, but that your elders have been given authority from God. Your pastors have been given authority from God. And only on this basis, on the authority of God, in accordance with his word, can they command anything? What do we command? The command that you will hear most often is that you repent and believe and trust in Jesus Christ. This is the greatest command, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this means repenting of your sins, placing all your faith and your hope in Christ. And of course, there are other Lesser commands that flow from that command. And just as you are called to obey, I'm called to be faithful and fearless as I strive to lead you in the ways of God. Fearless leadership. He goes on in verse 14. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy, when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Now, when you, you read that initially, you might be thinking, well, he's, Timothy's been given a gift of speaking or of leadership or of um, wisdom. That's not what Paul's talking about. He says this gift was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. The council of elders, the, the Greek word is presbytery. It's the same word we use today in our denomination. Our presbytery is all the pastors and elders of our region. Together, this body is the presbytery. When I was ordained, I was ordained by the presbytery, the council of elders, and they laid their hands on me. 
I try not to think about it all that much because it's overwhelming, the responsibility of a minister of the gospel. I remember, uh, I think it was Dr. Scott Swain, the, the class I remember is, uh, I think it was called Worship. No, it was Covenant Theology. It was, it was the class in seminary that I took called Covenant Theology. And they were describing um, how ministers of the gospel really are covenant enforcers in the tradition of the prophets. Not that they have uh, the power to call down fire from heaven or something like a prophet was, was doing, but that they were proclaiming the word of God on behalf of God. So there was a young man, the story goes, there was a young man being ordained. He was right out of seminary, maybe 25, 26 years old. He's been called to a large church. And during the midst of the ordination ceremony, there's a time where uh, one of the elders gets up and he begins to tell this young man all the things that he must do. You must do this, and you must do this, and on Sundays we do this, and you should strive to continue to do this, and you must do this. The ladies love it when you do this, so you must do that. you got to do this, and you should do this. Don't ever change that, and you, sh- you should do that. Welcome to our church. And then it was time for him to talk. And as the story was relayed to me, this young man stood up and he said, There's one thing that you all need to know before anything else. I will strive my very best to serve you and love you as a servant of Jesus Christ. But I don't work for you. I don't work for you. And I don't work for you. And I don't work for you. I work for God alone. He's my master. He's my employer. And if you decide to get rid of me someday, God has another plan for me and praise God. But I don't work for you. And of course, I do work for you all. But... Ultimately, I don't. Ultimately, I work for Christ, for God alone. And that's what Paul is saying to Timothy. You have been given a gift, this gift of leadership. You've been given the gift of pastoring this particular church. When the elders laid their hands on you, they gave you that gift and don't neglect it. He said this two times in this letter and once in the next, I believe. And you remember the reason that Paul is doing this is because Timothy is probably younger than most of the people in his congregation. He says like Jeremiah, I'm, I'm too young to do this, Paul. You're calling me to correct people that are older than me. And you remember what God told Jeremiah. Don't say I'm just a youth, for to all whom I send you, you shall go. Whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. The same applies to every pastor since then, as it applied to Timothy, as it applied to the apostles, as as it applied to all the prophets, as it applied to Jesus. Everyone who's called to preach is called to fear God and not man and to just do his job. I remember when I first arrived, it was in the first couple months, I was, I was just trying to kind of gently manage everything. I remember, Jerry, I don't know if you remember this, but you told me one of the very first weeks or months, you said, Richard, we'll do our job and you just do yours. 
And that was just so refreshing. I thought, oh, thank you, Jerry. I'll just try to do my job. Because that's frankly enough. All the apostles and the prophets were told that if they just did their job, that they weren't going to be popular. If they were going to be like their master, they're going to be despised and rejected. It just comes with the territory. Because you're saying things that people don't like if you're being faithful. And pastors, for better or for worse, are in the spotlight. I'm not saying I'm, I'm regretting being a pastor. That's not the point. But I just want you to see the themes of Scripture because... Jesus himself said, if they did this to me, they're going to do it to you too. Timothy was despised because he was young. Paul, we know, was despised because he wasn't a powerful speaker. Jesus was despised because he was the Son of God. All ministers are lifted up to suffer like their Savior in various ways. And Satan will never miss an opportunity to attack. If you're with me going through the, the Murray McChain reading plan, I know maybe some of you are. Um, right now we're reading through uh, Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. And one thing that becomes clear is that these Israelites in the desert, they're always grumbling. They're grumbling about everything. They're getting manna, and the manna doesn't taste good. We're, so, we're tired of the quail, we're tired of that meat. Where's the water? We should go back to Egypt. The grumbling just continued. The reality is that this kind of dissension in the flock has always been how Satan kind of wiggles in and stirs up trouble. And you know who feels it the most is the pastor. Again, we're not feeling any dissension right now, but I'm just saying this is what happens. This is Satan's plan. He causes dissension. He stirs up trouble. And this happened to Timothy. And this is why Paul is writing him and telling him these things. Be faithful. Be faithful to preach and command the truth. I charge you to do this. In light of God and all His angels, you teach the truth. Despite the fact that there will be grumbling and fault finding. People who fall into that are basically a tool of the enemy. But regardless, the man of God is to fearlessly lead, fearlessly love, fearlessly pursue, fearlessly teach, fearlessly preach, to fear God and not man. Because they remember who commissioned them. The elders acting on behalf of God commissioned them. So God commissioned them. God is the master. He's the employer. He's the king. He's the great shepherd. It's he who gives authority. And really, if you take Christ's word seriously, you see that when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you because of me, because of Jesus, we're to rejoice. We're blessed. And not just pastors, but all of us. Why? Because so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So for this reason, Paul tells Timothy, when correcting false doctrine or false practice or charging people to pursue God, he's to command them, to command obedience in the truth of the Scripture in the name of Almighty God and not shrink away in cowardice. 
You don't want a cowardly pastor. You don't want a cowardly elder. You want someone who loves you and who's willing to preach the truth and talk to you about truth. Not only command, though, he says right after command, teach. You see, command is more like a zinger, isn't it? It feels like, it feels like a, a drill sergeant, maybe, who's just saying, stop, tin hut, present arms, charge. There are commands, of course, but there's also teaching. And teaching is much more deliberate, more developmental. The, the teaching kind of empowers the command. Because after years of teaching, when you hear a command, you just know it's right. Even if you don't like it, you've been taught the Word of God. So what's application from this first point? That your pastor should be fearlessly leading you in the fear of God. First of all, I think it's obvious you should pray for your elders and you should pray for your pastor. To be fearless in their life and their doctrine and their teaching. These are men who should love you dearly and fear God enough to speak the truth. Why? James 3.1 says, because they'll be judged with greater strictness. We need your prayers. I need your prayers. Secondly, I would say, when you hear a word of rebuke or command or encouragement from the pulpit or in person, you should strive to honor it as unto the Lord. Don't view it as some... Uh, this is kind of optional, Richard saying this thing. Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And let them do it with joy and not groaning. So if you're going to listen to and obey your leaders, you, I think, need to know that they love you. And I can tell you, I love each one of you. You're precious to me. I strive to pray for you every single day. I strive to know everything about you. Some people have, some of my friends have really large churches. They don't even know everybody in their church. It's one reason why I'm glad that the growth of the church is in God's hands. Because I like a church where I know everyone. And I pray for you. I love you. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, I preach as a dying man to dying men. That's how I feel. But your flesh, I believe, will rise up occasionally. Maybe not today, but someday. You'll hear something said, and you know it's biblical, but you might think something like this. Well, I know, I know Richard. I know him really well. He's just a guy. He's, some of his kids are a little bit messed up. Sorry, guys. Some of his... <laughs> His wife and him, they don't have the best relationship. We do. But, you know, you, your, your mind will start to, to think, well, I know where he's from. I've met his parents. I met his brother once. We know his children. We know that guy. He's a nobody. I'm not going to listen to that. It's true. I'm probably a nobody, but I work for somebody. The Holy One of Israel. The living and true God. And you want your pastor to fear God, not man. So when he speaks words you don't like, receive them with faith and love as much as they're biblical. Pray that he's a fearless leader. It's important if he's going to be a sound pastor. But secondly, the second point, 
Paul is very interested in right worship, and he goes on to talk about right worship. He wants to restore right worship in the church because Ephesus had been so disrupted by these false teachers who were saying all kinds of crazy things. Wives' tales. Can you imagine me getting up and just preaching a wives' tale? That's what was happening. Myths and genealogies. You were seeing all kinds of backbiting and gossip in the church. All kind of fault-finding. Rather than the words of life and encouragement, the tongue was being used for selfishness and prideful reasons. Worthless doctrines of demons. So Paul basically has to reset. And he's like, okay, Timothy, this is what corporate worship should look like. These are your priorities. And what is it? The Bible. The Bible, the gospel, the truth is your priority. Verse 13, he says, I come, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. The public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, which is preaching, and to teaching. Those three things are what he's supposed to devote himself to. Public reading of Scripture. So the Bible is so little read and studied today. It explains a lot about the situation our country's in. It explains a lot about the situation many churches are in. Only 10% of Americans read their Bibles every day. I was actually surprised the number was that high, 10%. But in church go, among churchgoers, only one-third of churchgoers read their Bibles every day. So Paul's command to Timothy is our command as well to devote ourselves to Scripture. He specifically says to the public reading of Scripture. In a worship service, reading the Bible is one of the most important things we could do. We do it often for that reason. You may have been to churches where the Bible just really wasn't read, wasn't emphasized. The sermon was kind of based loosely on a Bible topic. You might have heard one or two verses. But the trend away from Bible and worship continues really to this day, and it seems to be growing outside the Reformed tradition. It seems to be growing. Why is that? Well, the Bible's not too exciting, we're told. The Bible's too harsh. It says really hard things. The Bible's just not relevant. We don't don't want that per se. The less of that and the more of kind of a really inspiring message that the pastor could come up with full of jokes and that's what we need. And videos and drama and good bands. And if the church is ever going to grow, that's what we need. If we're going to stay relevant with the culture, don't talk about sin. Don't talk about these, these biblical doctrines. They're too hard. Thanks be to God that the growth of the church is in God's hands. Our duty is to preach and teach the truth. But Paul says that we need to hear the Word of God read in church. So I encourage you, when you hear the reading of the Scripture, whether you're sitting or standing, zero in on these words. Remember who wrote them. God wrote those words, and He wanted you to hear them. He brought you in and put you in that seat this morning to hear this word for your soul. Pray that the Holy Spirit causes you to see the glory of Christ in the Word of God. So besides reading the Word of God publicly, 
We also see that Timothy is called to exhort or to preach. Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones, I love this quote. What's the chief end of preaching? He said it's to give men and women a sense of God in his presence. I love that. Exhortation. This This word in Greek also means kind of comfort. The sermon should be comforting. It should be rebuking and exhorting and training and correcting. Part of being a fighter pilot is, is being trained, and the training is just ongoing until you become an instructor pilot, and you're the one that has to train the younger pilots. And the best instructor pilots, I mean, any instructor pilot could just notice, review your tapes, notice what you did wrong, and just crush you. Look at all these things you did wrong, not in accordance with the standards. That's why you ended up dying in this practice simulation fight. Okay, don't ever do that again. Next, boom, 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 boom. These are all the things you did wrong. Don't ever do that again. Anyone could do that. But the best instructors were those who not only pointed out the truth about what you did wrong, but then left you inspired. You walked out of the debriefing room and you just felt like, I busted that ride, but I'm so motivated to go and and try this again. Godly preaching is something like that. You feel like your heart is being crushed by the Word of God, and yet you're also inspired by the Holy Spirit to go and to do this, to do this differently. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says that preaching will be effectual in your life if you attend unto it with diligence and preparation and prayer. How do you attend to a sermon with diligence? Psalm 1-2 says, Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in due season. You just submit yourself to the preaching of the word again and again and again. And like a tree planted by water, as you meditate on that word, it causes you to grow and bear fruit. You're diligent. With preparation as well, you receive the word of God with preparation. Luke 8-18, Jesus said, Take care then, How you hear. For the one who has, more will be given. And the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Take care how you hear. You prepare to receive it. 1 Peter 2, 1 and 2. Peter says, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. So do those things. Put those things away. And like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk. So you prepared to receive the word. Diligence, preparation, and prayer. Pray that God helps you receive the word of God. But then the divines also go on to say that it has to be received with faith and love. The word must be received with faith and love. Hebrews two, verse or sorry, Hebrews four, verse two. For the good news came to us just as it did to them, talking about the Israelites in the wilderness. The good news came to us just as it to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them. Why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. You've got to receive it with faith that this is the Holy Spirit talking to your soul through His Word, through the preached Word of God. But with faith and love, 2 Thessalonians 2.10, that 
There are those who are perishing. Why? Because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Westminster Divines go on to say, It must be laid up in your hearts. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Right? The word must be laid up in your hearts. That means you hold to it and you cherish it. It must be practiced in your lives. It's not only those who hear the word, but those who do it. Not just hearing it, but keeping it. That's a theme of Christ's teaching. Don't be a forgetful hearer, James says, but a doer of the work can so be blessed. This is how preaching benefits you. But finally, teaching. Reading, preaching, and teaching. There is teaching in preaching, of course. But teaching is explaining the Word of God, where preaching is pushing for a decision. Preaching is, is an exhortation that desires a decision to holy living, that pushes you to choose Christ and not yourself or the world. It seeks to produce a crisis in your soul. Whereas teaching is focused on explaining the text. And of course, there's, there's some overlap for sure in the two. When Jerry was preaching or teaching this morning in Sunday school, I felt the weight of the words on my soul. So, of course, there's some exhortation involved as well. But preaching and teaching, are that's the primary duty of, of a pastor and prayer. The Reformers, you might think John Calvin and John Knox and Martin Luther, these men thought of themselves as great kind of just inspirational reforming men. They saw themselves really as ordinary pastors. That's what their writings portray. They're just ordinary pastors striving to teach the Word of God, to preach it well. Okay, point of application before the conclusion. When you look at a church, what you want to see is not great programs or a great youth group. or I mean, those things are good, sure, but you want solidly confessional preaching. You want sound doctrine. It will all be worthless in the end if you don't have a pastor whose business is prayer and the Word of God. All else flows from this. The Word of God is central to every worship service. You know this. We read it. We teach it. We pray it. We see it in the sacraments. We taste it in the sacraments. We sing it. We touch it. Because in it we see the glory of Jesus Christ. So you want a fearless leader who fears God? And you want a man who's focused on right worship. This is what Paul wanted from Timothy. Why? This is the conclusion. It's the last verse of the chapter. For by doing so, you save both yourself and your hearers. We don't come to worship because it's a good tradition. We don't come to worship because we feel like we should. It's our heritage. This is the church of the living God. It's the pillar and buttress of truth. We come to meet the Almighty God. We come to find salvation in Jesus Christ. We come to behold the glory of Christ. We come for Jesus. And when you consider all that we've said, remember that it also applies to you. All of this. You should be fearless. You should be devoted to right worship, both here and in your homes. So well, I don't really think that does apply to me, Richard. Well, actually, you remember in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says that he taught to equip the saints. 
for the work of ministry. Why did he say that? Because you're the ones that are actually always in the world. You're always out doing the work of God. You're doing ministry. You're more a minister than I am in that sense of the word. So be courageous and fear God and not men. And devote yourself to right worship, both at home and in the church. Let us pray. Almighty God, we do thank you that you have called us to this place to hear your word, to worship your holy name. We pray that we would be fearless as your people. We would be those who are committed to truth. We thank you for this church. We thank you that you have preserved us. The enemy has attacked over the years in the past 200 years this church has been attacked a number of times and yet by your grace and your mercy we're still here and it's only your providence that keeps us here so we pray in jesus name that we would desire what is right and true we would focus our lives on the main thing the gospel of jesus christ would be central to our lives your gospel would be central in our hearts that we would desire fearless leadership from our elders, our pastors, men who love you and love your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our mighty Savior. Amen.